Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Sleep much, some fun facts, and health concerns for daylight saving time. Also, Dr. John Weisel, a cardiologist, talks about how spiking heart rates could be related to long COVID. Plus, seeing clearly now, talking about an eye disease that resulted in blindness for many Canadians because of the pandemic. As restrictions for masks, etc., are lifted, will our moods be lifted as well? Maybe, maybe not. Psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Taylor joins me to discuss. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Little theme of the program tonight is daylight saving time, and I, I appreciate your text. And I, before I um, speak to my guest, I just wanted to read a text from Sarah in Alberta who said that uh, daylight saving time year-round would be a disaster in the wintertime with the sun not coming up until 9.30 in December in most of Canada. True enough, that would be uh, an absolute disaster. I agree with you, Sarah. Thank you so much for your text. We're going to continue the conversation a little bit along with uh, some talk about long COVID symptoms as well. And joining me on the line is Dr. John Weisler. You've heard his voice before on the program. He's an experienced general cardiologist in private practice, also head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital and the North Shore Heart Center in North Vancouver, British Columbia. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Good evening, Marie. Nice to have you on the program again. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to be here. You're very welcome. We might as well continue with the daylight saving uh, talk, and then we'll get on to long COVID and some of the surprising symptoms, um, in particular spiking heart rate, which which my brother experienced as well. Um, but but let's get back to uh, daylight saving time and the impact on one's heart, not to mention sleep, which can also indirectly affect a person's heart health. So so is daylight saving time losing that hour of sleep? Uh, neg- does that have a negative impact on a person's heart health? So it, it does, or at least it can. Uh, yeah. So there have been uh, several studies, Maureen, that show that um, in the two weeks after the shift with daylight saving time, where we spring forward one hour, like last night, uh, the rates of heart disease and a stroke are, you know, are, are higher and appreciably higher. So there was there was one study um, published back in 2015 that showed an increase in stroke of about 8% the first two weeks after the time shift compared to the two weeks before. Um, another study, 2017, uh, shows similar findings with heart attacks. There's an increase the first two weeks after about 6 to 7% in that study. So it does seem that there's an increased risk um, right after the time change. And so is it that loss of the one hour or is that shift to the circadian rhythm or is it that people have more difficulty having um, sleeping through for eight hours or are they, are there, is their sleep disrupted? Are they going to bed later? Was there something that was um, you know, correlated to this? So a great answer. I think it's kind of all of the above. You know, we, we don't uh, fully know. Um, Sleep is important. We've discussed before, you know, it, it does a lot to help our heart health by, you know, helping us control our blood pressure and allowing the blood vessels to remain healthy by recycling um, products of cell break- breakdown and removing inflammatory markers from our circulation. So maybe there's a and you don't sleep as well, and so your heart works a little bit harder. Um, so the exact answer is not known. There's several different mechanisms that have been um, suggested that might explain it, but I don't think we really know for sure. It's kind of all of the above right now. 
Right. And, you know, so many people have difficulty sleeping. I mean, I, I have spoken to, as you have, I'm sure, spoken to many, many people over the years. And, you know, you know that they say they, they've never been able to sleep or they're not a good sleeper or they wake up at night or they have difficulty falling asleep or they wake up early. Uh, there are lots of prescriptions for sleeping pills, um, sleeping medications that are handed out fairly readily. Sleep hygiene is is critically important. And so just how important is sleep on the heart? And if one can't sleep and they have tried all of the conservative measures of, you know, exercising during the day, not drinking too much alcohol before they go to bed or caffeine, those kinds of things, going to bed at the same time uh, every night, waking up at the same time, no television, your electronics in the bedroom, the whole thing. Um, is, is it better for people to take a sleeping pill, a prescribed sleeping medication? So that's a, that's a good question. I don't know that I have a, an easy, you know, or a, a straightforward answer for that. I think, um, the benefits of sleep are profound and, you know, both for our heart and for, you know, our brain and for other organ systems. And um, my own personal bias is that sleep is important and that sleep medications when used, you know, under the supervision of a qualified physician that, you know, knows how to help you and monitor you for your sleep. I think they are safe and they they certainly are, are healthy. Um, Most doctors and you know, I think I think in in many ways I I don't treat sleep disorders. I see the impacts in my practice of the caveat, but I say that um, short term use of sleeping aids is extremely um, you know safe and and can be helpful at interrupting um, you know a, a difficult sleep pattern and a lot of the you know rebound like insomnia people get that they they worry that they can't sleep and that aggravates the situation worse so they get in a negative cycle they can't sleep they drink more stimulants the next day so to try and interrupt that and reset the body sleep aids for one to two weeks um many physicians i think are are comfortable using depends on on the patient and and their history but many times it it does work well but then long-term use um you know, we, we try to avoid. There are some theoretical concerns, uh, especially for older patients. They're, they're not theoretical. They certainly happen. People will have trouble, you know, with their balance the next day or, um, you know, it may have an adverse effect on cognition, especially in older patients. So your memory and, you know, many of that's pro- a lot of that is probably temporary. But there are some potential harms to long term use of sleeping aids. Does the is it a net benefit compared to all the benefits of sleep? We don't know. So the usual advice would be um, a short term course of medications if necessary and then other factors so all the sleep hygiene that you you know mentioned really well you know keeping your bedroom dark um, avoiding light an hour before bedtime trying to wind down not doing work late at night uh, minimizing alcohol within three or four hours of bedtime caffeine within you know don't drink within 12 hours of bedtime caffeine has a longer duration in your body what we call a half-life a longer half-life than many of us us realize so usually you cut it off at noon if you're going to have uh, caffeine at all to allow you to sleep in the evening. So you look at those factors and then also um, things like cognitive behavioral therapy that help you, um, you know, retrain your mind to, to sleep better, not be as anxious or as concerned about your lack of sleep to help you relax. Those are better long-term solutions. 
you, you made just so many great points in, in all of that. Um, you know, uh, people worry, you know, it made me think about people who are up night, up at night, you know, making lists, thinking about what they're going to do the next day. You know, they're worried about things. I, I always think whatever problem that is going, that I'm going to face tomorrow, I will face it better on a good night's sleep. <laughs> number one. Definitely um, true. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, we all have troubles uh, that come our way. And the other great point that you made, and especially as people get older, they start advancing in age. If they're taking sleeping medications, and, and I agree, under the supervision of a physician, but they can lead to dizziness, lightheadedness, um, you know, a feeling of being groggy or hungover in the morning. And that can increase the risk of falls and fractures for people, especially if they have concerns like overactive bladder or urinary incontinence where they're getting up in the night. And a lot of people will get up in the night um, because they may have urgency or they may have prostate issues or they may have uh, an overactive bladder or urge incontinence. And so taking a sleeping pill, getting up to go, go to the bathroom, and it also can increase your um, frequency. It can increase urinary frequency because it can also relax the bladder as well. So you know, you just brought up so many great points and um, realizing that, you know, sleep hygiene is so critical and approaching it from a conservative standpoint is always the best. And, and as a physician, Dr. Weisler, you write prescriptions. <laughs> um, and uh, but do you start typically with conservative measures? But I, I also know that, I mean, people, I'm a nurse. People, I do not write prescriptions, but I have been asked to write prescriptions many times because people don't understand that. But, but more so the sentiment is, you know, Hey, Maureen, can you just give me a pill for this? You know, especially if they come in because they're leaking urine or, you know, and so, or just can, can I just, can you just tell the doctor that I need the procedure to be done, you know, before the diagnosis is made and people seem to want a quick fix. Now heart health, you know, oftentimes it's, there are some, preventive measures that people could have done before getting to your office. But um, how much do you focus on pr uh, prescribing conservative measures for patients versus medications? And I know that it's kind of a very difficult question to uh, answer, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, well, it's, I, no, it's a great question. Um, uh, but know, I guess is conservative important and, and, and I suppose all of it combined, but go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, exactly what you said. All of it combined is important. And, you know, as, as doctors, we, we tend to think a lot about prescriptions because those are things that we can give a patient and, you know, they're, they're regulated. So we usually have a pretty good idea of what they will do if you take them. So how they will lower your cholesterol or how they may help you sleep. Um, but in all of our guidelines, you know, if, if you read them, they're all long and painful to read, but they all start by you know, lifestyle factors first. So eliminating your triggers, improving uh, health behaviors. And that's, that's step one for everything, whether it's cholesterol or heart disease treatment or, you know, or sleep, sleep disorders or you, you name it. So, um, you know, I think one thing, you know, I could do better and a lot of doctors can probably do better is sometimes give, give people like a specific written reference for, um, you know, for the lifestyle behaviors we want to do. I, I do that sometimes with exercise, you know, in my practice, I'll write down 
exercise this much for this many minutes. It's usually like light intensity exercise for 30 minutes, five times a week. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I always feel like a little bit silly, but studies show that a lot of patients like it and they find it to be a helpful reminder. Um, I don't probably do that enough for other things, uh, but we certainly have a discussion on, you know, things like diet uh, when we're talking about coronary disease. And then when, when you come to the sleep disorders, again, there's very well defined, you know, behavioral things that like, like what we've mentioned with the sleep hygiene and, 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 and um, you know, other, other techniques like that, minimizing light exposure that can all uh, be helpful. And again, that would be sort of step one. For, for sleep disorders specifically, I don't, I don't treat patients a lot with sleeping pills. I will occasionally, if it's sort of expected to be time limited until they, you know, maybe for two weeks until you can go see your family doctor who's more appropriate usually for that or for the odd patient that's facing, you know, a procedure that they're anxious about. For example, they're going to have surgery in a couple of weeks. I may give them a temporary prescription there with the idea that it's, you know, just a temporary use um, because because I don't know that I have enough skills in counseling to help alleviate all of that anxiety. You know, I, I try my best, but um, <laughs> lifestyle and conservative management is always step one for sure. Dr. John Weisler, cardiologist, is my guest. We're talking long COVID. Many people who are on the men from COVID-19 may have noticed a confusing symptom that has been plaguing them for weeks that would be a sudden, unexplained spiking of their heart. For some people, it's brief. It might be just a reminder that they had an acute phase of an illness while they start to get back to their pre-COVID level of fitness. But heart palpitations and confusing spikes or elevations in heart rates can also be scary, but they're one of the most common symptoms that plague people with long COVID. So I'm glad to have Dr. John Weisler here with me to discuss this a little bit. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Weisler. Have you seen patients who have experienced um, heart palpitations or spiking heart rates, elevated heart rates above 100 beats per minute after having had COVID? Yeah, definitely, Maureen. So this is a a fairly common concern. You know, um, patients who have had COVID, even, you know, a milder version where they, you know, were just at home and and had to isolate for, you know, a week to 10 days or something and seemed to get better, get over their symptoms. But there's long COVID, you know, it takes a number of different forms. There's the really severe versions where people have a lot of different chest pains and fatigability and brain fog. And, you know, maybe milder forms, people, they feel their heart racing, should, uh, they get out of breath more quickly when they're walking. They, maybe they have a, like an Apple Watch or another device, like a Fitbit that monitors their heart rate, and they're seeing heart rates 10 or 20 beats per minute higher um, than they're used to, uh, whether they're at rest or with fairly, fairly minimal activity, you know, just walking or something like that. So it's a fairly common concern. And and so I imagine people would be quite nervous about it, especially if they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Do you, um, you know, do you see that? Are people nervous about it? And should they be concerned? So they are definitely nervous. Um, the majority of the times, it seems that nothing is seriously wrong with their heart. There have been there there is there is data or there are data to to show that some heart disorders are likely if you've had COVID. Uh, so there's a range of them. Um, so uh, you can get more significant arrhythmias, but a lot of the time the fast heartbeat seems to just be a normal rhythm that um, is inappropriately fast, and that's that's um, it's a, something with your autonomic nervous system. So that's the from the brainstem it regulates your heart rate and your 
you know, your blood pressure and other things like digestion and stuff like that. And that all works in the background. And so a lot of these people, there seems to be something with their autonomic nervous system where it hasn't fully healed or it's not, you know, quite back to normal. So the resting heart rate, which is usually governed by the brainstem, is a little bit faster than normal. So much of the time, that's what it is. There are, you know, more serious heart problems that can happen. So if it's really concerning, it's always good to have it checked and you can do an ECG or something like that where we can see what your heart rhythm is actually doing and we can be more precise. So it's good to get it checked, but often it turns out that it's nothing more serious, um, but the heart rate is a bit higher than you. Uh, yeah. And, you know, um, we're lifting restrictions, but, you know, it, it's, you just don't even want to have three or four weeks of an elevated heart rate or, <laughs> or mm, blood exactly. clot symptoms, you know, um, in your brain, like, like Haley Bieber, it, like Haley Bieber has, um, it was reported that she had experienced that, you know, so there's still good reason to mask up, you know, know your vulnerability, keep your distance, you know, especially when you're mm-hmm. indoors, uh, definitely mask up because I don't think people realize that 33% of people get long COVID symptoms and, and this, you know, it's a little known condition really at this stage of the game. D- definitely agree with you. I mean, it's, I think that, you know, wearing a mask is a relatively, you know, minor thing. It's it's nice to not have to do it anymore, but it's still worth being yeah. cautious uh, because there's still a lot that we're learning that we don't fully understand about COVID and the long-term implications of having had COVID. So it's better to err on the side of caution, even if it's just for a little bit longer to see our numbers drop further. 100% agree with you. Uh- Absolutely. And Dr. Beisler, somebody texted in, actually Sarah texted in. She said, you have a great show. And the only reason I have a great show is because of fabulous guests like yourself. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on the show for many years now. <laughs> Take Thank care. You for having me. All right. You're very welcome. Thank you. You got questions. She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. We've got lots to talk about in this hour. We're going to be talking about mental health as it relates to daylight saving time and lifting restrictions and uh, also going to be answering some of your messages as well. And then I've got some sleep tips for you. So if you can stay up till the end of the show, uh, you might get more sleep. God knows I can sleep. Anyway, um, but right now, A new national survey showed that 45% of Canadians living with glaucoma had no prior knowledge of their disease before the diagnosis. And it's estimated that over 728,000 Canadians are impacted by glaucoma, which is also known as the silent thief of sight. Joining me on the line is Dr. Priya Gupta from Surrey, British Columbia. Good evening. She is an ophthalmologist from Surrey, British Columbia. Good evening, Dr. Gupta. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Oh, good. So nice to have you on the program. I'm very, very, yeah, this is a a very interesting subject. I was very intrigued by the results of the glaucoma patient survey. Um, What were some of the key points of of that survey that was conducted by Leger of about 150 Canadians diagnosed with glaucoma? Right. So, as you mentioned, um, one of the findings was that 45% of Canadians had no prior knowledge of their disease prior to the diagnosis. And that's interesting to me because typically studies have shown when looking at uh, patients' awareness of glaucoma, or just the general population awareness of glaucoma, 
in the developed world, so in the U.S., Europe, typically about 70 to, sorry, 60 to 70 percent of patients are aware of at least what glaucoma is. And um, maybe in the developing world, there's less of an awareness, but typically it's only about 20 to 30% that are unaware of what glaucoma is. And so the fact that this shows that 40 to 45% or so were unaware of what glaucoma is, to me, that's, that's alarming. Um, you know, there's been a lot of... Um, pushes a lot of public health initiatives to try to increase awareness of glaucoma. But some of the factors that go into, um, like I said in some of the prior studies, what go into what um, cause the unawareness of glaucoma include, uh, for instance, uh, language barrier. That's a big one. Uh, a second big one is uh, education. But another one is whether or not family members have glaucoma as well. And so, um, uh, having a family history of glaucoma is a very high indicator of somebody going on to develop glaucoma as well. Your risk is about 4 to 9%. And so if somebody themselves doesn't have anybody in their family with glaucoma, it's less likely for them to understand what glaucoma is. And what exactly is glaucoma for the listeners? Right. So glaucoma is actually... A collection of diseases, but uh, they have the common pathway that it causes damage to the optic nerve. Um, the optic nerve is the part of the eye that connects the eye to the brain. And so when there's this optic nerve damage, and it's a characteristic glaucoma uh, or optic nerve damage, you start to lose your side vision or your peripheral vision. Um, and that causes a permanent and irreversible vision loss. Uh, what makes that particularly threatening is that it's silent. So there are no symptoms really until it's advanced. And so glaucoma creates pressure on your eyes, but you don't see the impact? Is that um, a fair right. statement? So, you know, what's, uh, what's interesting is that when you actually read what the definition of glaucoma is, which is optic nerve damage that causes loss of side vision, the actual pressure is not part of the definition. However, you're correct in that the only thing that we can control is the eye pressure. So there are certain risk factors for developing glaucoma. Those include advancing age. Uh, it includes um, uh, having a family history of glaucoma. It's also what your ethnicity is. And then finally, having a, what, having a high eye pressure. So um, certainly the higher somebody's eye pressure is, the greater the risk for glaucoma is as well. Um, there are some people that have a normal eye pressure and they still go, go on to develop glaucoma. But no matter what, out of those things, the only thing that's in our control is to actually try to lower the eye pressure. And, and that's when we go to have our eye exams and they dilate your eyes and do the full-on exam and they'll say your, your eye pressure is good. So they're, exactly, they're looking exactly. for glaucoma. So this is where it's really important because, like I said, it's silent and it comes on slowly. So generally when there even is some loss of side vision, we adapt to it and so we don't notice it. And so the eye exam is important because there's a couple components that your eye doctor will look for. Number one, they'll certainly measure the eye pressure. Uh, number two, they'll look at what the optic nerve looks like to see if there are any suspicious features that might tip somebody off that glaucoma might be developing. 
And um, they also may or may not test what the side vision or the peripheral vision looks like on what we call a field of vision test. And so if they see that the pressure is elevated on that eye exam, but, but the person has not gone on to have glaucoma, is there something that can be done from a uh, preventive perspective? You know, um, so unfortunately, there's not really much in our control when it comes to diet, exercise, in terms of lowering our risk for glaucoma. But the Mm -hmm. best thing we can do is to have regular eye exams. And so generally, we recommend that any adult, especially over the age of 40, should be having an eye exam every one to two years. Um, So even let's say somebody has, like you said, a high eye pressure, but their optic nerve looks healthy, there's no damage on their peripheral vision, that person is not in the clear. They still need to have an eye exam probably every year just to ensure Uh that there is no optic nerve damage happening. Um, Your eye doctor, whether it's your optometrist or your ophthalmologist, can monitor whether or not there is any side vision being lost with, like I said, a field of vision test. Sometimes photos are taken. Sometimes images are taken of the optic nerve as well. I want to go get an eye exam, but uh, during the, uh, I, I, I have had, actually had one within the last year because um, I, I broke my glasses. Anyway, that's another, that's another story. Um, but uh, the Canadian Council of the Blind estimates that about 1,500 Canadians lost their sight during the first year of COVID because of the surgical and the eye exam delays, which is so sad. You know, it it is really sad. And, um, you know, obviously, especially in the early part of the pandemic, we were in a position where, you know, we were trying to save our resources for people Uh that were very sick and also to prevent, um, you know, people from coming into the office and potentially catching COVID. Um, You know, one of the pluses, I would say, of COVID, and we're seeing this obviously across healthcare is that there is um, been an increase in adoption of telemedicine. And while nothing's going to, you know, trump going into the office and having um, your eye examined, mm-hmm. there is more of a move now towards um, some of these exams being consolidated in the office. And so that could potentially allow for some um, monitoring to to prevent that from happening. But certainly, you know, more people did lose their vision in that time. There was a delay in having surgical access. And, you know, another tricky part in that time was there was also disruption in supply chain, so patients couldn't get their medications sometimes as well. And and what are the medications to use to treat glaucoma? Right. So, you know, there's, there's, there's medications, like you said. Often um, one of the first-line treatments uh, we consider is actually laser. So there are lasers that can be done, um, and it depends on what type of glaucoma somebody has. But um, often one of our first-line treatments is doing a laser in order to try to lower the pressure. But if that's, um, if that's uh, let's say, not effective, then the next step would be um, starting an eye drop. There's about five different drug classes that we can work with, and often they come in different combinations. So speaking to your doctor about which is the best one for you, some of the considerations we have are, you know, how 
much can you tolerate once a day dosing versus two to three times a day dosing, um, how that might interfere with some other medications you may be taking. But there is a lot in our toolbox before we would need to move to the next step, which is surgery. Oh, okay. I, did, I didn't actually realize that. Is that surgery to relieve the pressure? to relieve the pressure. So unfortunately, we can't bring back vision at this point um, mm-hmm. in terms of any vision that might be lost from glaucoma. There is a lot of exciting research being done to try to look at how nerve cells that have been damaged could be regenerated. But at this point, um, no surgery can actually bring back any vision that's lost, but to try to lower the pressure to halt further vision loss. So it's, it's not a, a definite uh, blindness, especially if people recognize symptoms or have their annual or every one to two year, depending on their history, eye examinations. That seems to be critical. Um, but if they, people have started to lose their vision, they should go right to their doctor? Absolutely. And absolutely. And, you know, to me, I actually think that that's hopeful in that because we have such a nice array of treatments that when somebody comes with the diagnosis of glaucoma, really our goal and most people will retain the vision they have for life. So the studies show that people that go on to uh, have blindness or at least um, the kind of blindness that may, let's say, impair their uh, ability to maintain a driver's license, those people are generally presented late with glaucoma, so they already had quite advanced glaucoma damage at presentation, or some people that may struggle to come to appointments or stick with their treatment regimen. Um, Those are people that may go on, have a higher risk of going on to blindness, but if you're coming to your appointments, you're using your medications, you're having your regular eye exams, chances are very high you'll maintain your vision for the rest of your life. Well, that is fascinating. And, you know, this is not um, something for seniors or older people. The average age of glaucoma diagnosis is 51. So Right. And, yeah. you know, that to me is, it's, it's interesting as well because we think of glaucoma as um, a disease of the elderly. Patients um, often are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. But, again, to me, that actually shows that Um, we're doing a better job of picking up glaucoma and we're doing a better job of picking up glaucoma at the very earliest stages so that people, it tells me that people are going in for their exams um, in their 30s, 40s, and we're seeing those subtle changes on our testing before it's even impacting um, somebody's sight. And so we're able to pick it up, treat it, and hopefully we'll see that reflection in 30 to 40 years where there's less, that, that statistic you were saying of the number of people going blind every year, that number might start to go down. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's fascinating, and I really appreciate you coming on the program uh, to educate the listeners about it. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Great information. So if you have not had an eye exam within the last year, consider it if you have a family history of, of glaucoma as well. Just make sure you get those eye exams. Critically important. Times are a-changing, and with many governments lifting restrictions across Canada and other parts of the world, we have to look to our mental health. It's not easy for everybody. We've been through two years of 
ups and downs and loss and grief and changes, working from home, homeschooling, employment issues, people dying alone. It's, it's been tough and it is still going to be tough for some people. So joining me on the line to discuss your mental health coming out of a pandemic is Dr. Stephen Taylor. He's a professor and clinical psychologist at the University of British Columbia. Good evening, Dr. Taylor. Hi there, Maureen. How are you? Very well, thanks. How are you? Oh, good. I'm fine, thank you. So as, as governments across Canada ease the public health restrictions, uh, we many Canadians are feeling cautiously optimistic, my, myself included. I, I am still going to wear a mask. I am still going to be careful indoors. And, um, you know, if I have any symptoms, I would certainly not get on a plane. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, you know, we're, we're going to adjust. But adjusting to a new normal with a virus that is still circulating can also spark feelings of, of anxiety for a lot of people, especially people who have vulnerabilities. So what impact does this have on people's mental health? It's been a mixed bag for um, many people. They've been doing okay. They've been been coping reasonably well, but for some people, a minority, um, they've been having a rough time. Um, of those people, um, many of them will bounce back when restrictions are lifted, but not everyone will. And I guess the big question at this point is how many people will have serious lingering mental health problems that will um, merit mental health uh, attention? It's time for The Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. As governments across Canada ease public health restrictions, we the pandemic may end at different times for different people. Joining me on the line to talk about this is UBC psychiatry professor, Dr. Stephen Taylor, who is also the author of The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Taylor. Thanks very much, Maureen. You're very welcome. Now, um, the pandemic will end, if, if you will, you know, at different times for different people. In other words, people's comfort levels may not be the same. Um, you know, I, I take a, pay, a line out of Ted Lasso's life, <laughs> be curious, not judgmental. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, um, but it, it's some people have such opposing views on this Um you know, so it's going to it's going to be difficult as people respond differently. But we we all have to, I gather, this phrase learning. We all have to learn to live with COVID nineteen. What does learning to live with COVID nineteen look like? Well, it depends on your circumstances. If you're immunocompromised, or if you have a history of an anxiety disorder, or if you've had traumatic experiences during COVID, uh, learning to live in the aftermath of COVID is very different from a person who sailed through the pandemic with very little or no difficulty. So, you know, it, it very much depends on the individual. But um, when restrictions are lifted, the, the, the research does strongly suggest that most people will bounce back, but not everyone. And some, some people will have the uh, unfortunate situation of not only learning to live with endemic COVID, but also having to um, uh, uh, suffer or endure um, mental health problems, which certainly would merit mental health treatment. So, you know, it depends on your circumstances. 
And, and for those people who are suffering just a little bit longer or who have had traumatic incidents during the pandemic or are immunocompromised and are living with anxiety, and that is the number one mental illness is anxiety in North America anyway, what are some of the methods for improving your mental health, your ability to bounce back? Uh, what would help people bounce back uh, from the pandemic? Mm-hmm. You could try some of the classic tried and true stress management approaches. And I think pretty much everyone uh, is familiar with uh, them at this stage of the pandemic. You know, adequate diet, sleep, exercise, connecting with friends and family, limiting your dose of disturbing news media. Obviously, people need to stay informed, but don't spend hours per day watching um, disturbing news media. But um, if those things aren't helpful for you aren't sufficient then my, my advice is you need to go and see your doctor and get a good diagnosis to understand mm-hmm. clearly what what your mental health problem is because that provides essential information for determining the best kind of treatment it's like a road map we can't set off on a journey without a good map so you need a good diagnosis to figure out how to fix a, a clinical problem you make such a great point. I mean, you really need to know the diagnosis to understand what treatment options are best for people. And, you know, as you said, it might be cognitive behavioral therapy, but but also there are some other um, programs that have been born out of the pandemic um, or utilized a little bit more. But, um, you know, some of the internet programs or the online uh, mental health support programs, Headspace, that kind of thing, phone apps, uh, and online sessions with a therapist. What are your thoughts on those? Are those beneficial for people? Yes, they are. They tend to be beneficial. They may not be sufficient for severe problems, but for many clinical problems, those resources are great uh, for a number of reasons. Um, they're readily accessed. It doesn't matter where you live. So long as you have an internet connection, you can get access to them. They're, they're free or many of them are free and and there, there are, there's some evidence that they are effective. I think this is how COVID-19 is different from past pandemics or outbreaks. We have all those mental health resources. And, and the, the, one of the problems we face is educating the public, letting people know that there are those resources out there for them to draw on. And what advice do you have for people who feel anxious to return to normal activities? I have to say, I went to the hairdresser for the first time in a long time. And, and, uh, you know, one other time I was forced to go, but everybody was masked and people were saying, you know, they had had their vaccinations. But this time there were more people in there. The hairdresser didn't have a mask on. Um, You know, and I have to say, it made me a little bit nervous. So, So what are your, what's your recommendation for people who, feel anxious i mean you know a hair your hair is important i I realize that (laughs) it's your crowning glory i have been in desperate straits over it (laughs) and and still it it didn't even come out that great (laughs) sorry to hear (laughs) Um, thanks you're not as sorry as i am (laughs) it's really bad but go ahead (laughs) fortunately this is radio (laughs) yeah well good well, my, my advice is all of these transitions can be disorienting and can be anxiety-provoking. Just like the transition, when we all transitioned into wearing masks, that was anxiety-provoking for many people. And ditto, this period where we're transitioning away from masks can be um, distressing to some people. My advice is take your time. Um, you know, Work within your comfort level. Um, of course, you need to consider your own particular circumstances. If you're immunocompromised, then it's going to be a different situation than if you're 
simply just anxious. But for many of the anxious people, they, they will find that given a week or so that they will gradually warm up and become more and more comfortable and, and may even find themselves comfortable in a hairdressing situation. And, and this is, this is um, disorienting for all of us. You know, for me, I walk around, I wear my mask in my back pocket and I walk into a store and figure out, well, do I, should I be putting on a mask for the, uh, out of consideration for the owners or other people or not? And for some of these stores, it looks like hardly anyone's wearing a mask, so I'll leave mine off in other cases. So I'm, I'm thinking about other people as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, give yourself time. There's no race to, to uh, be maskless. Um, and so just let it unfold. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to go back to another hairdresser to correct this. But anyway, <laughs> so I'll get my my courage up. Um, yes, but it, it, it is um, disheartening for uh, people to to get back uh, to normal activities. Um, what about, um, you know, the the issues that have occurred between couples, um, perhaps politically, because the pandemic has been politicized and, and families, you know, there have been falling out, falling out in families. Mm-hmm. Out? What's the correct grammatically correct? Anyway, um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people have fallen out with their with their families and even with their their partners and children. Um, so what do you suggest for that as we get back to, you know, no vaccine cards now and, and that kind of thing? Um, it really depends on, on the situation. I should add that there is a little bit of good news. There's surveys coming out suggesting that for a lot of people, their ties with families have strengthened over this pandemic. So they're having better relationships, but not everyone. As you mentioned, this pandemic has been fractious with lots of different uh, opinions and so forth. I, I think depending on the situation, you might need to find a time when you're both feeling calm and have the space to sit down and talk about the differences of opinion. But if you've got a family member who is, you know, let's take an extreme example, a conspiracy theorist who believes that COVID is a hoax and so forth. Um, you're, if the person is a hardcore conspiracy theorist, you're not going to persuade them. In fact, the harder you try to persuade them, the stronger they'll dig in their heels. In those extreme situations, perhaps the best you can do is agree to disagree. But in other cases, you, you may find that if you can have a calm dialogue where you, sh- you share each other's perspectives, where you try and understand the other person, you can find a common ground. So that sometimes those things can work out well. I'm so glad you mentioned the hardcore conspiracy theorists, and and I believe that they're more common, especially in large Irish Catholic families, <laughs> than than one might believe. But there's always one or three um, out of eighty <laughs> uh, first <laughs> relatives. So, and and you know, it has uh, impacted. There have been hard feelings, especially around the holidays, because you know there was somebody who was immunocompromised, and there were people who weren't vaccinated and who were never going to get vaccinated and you know what no one is ever going to change their mind and and you're right I didn't even realize that but you know so there's no point in trying you heard it from the doctor um what (laughs) but speaking of those who are immunocompromised or those at-risk individuals what can they do to protect themselves I think the first thing they should do is talk with their doctor and who, who is familiar with their particular situation uh, and, they, and between the two of you, you and your doctor can come up with a, a plan for how to keep 
yourself safe. I mean, I think that that's the best advice. There are too many variabilities. There are too many different kinds of specific situations to offer any blanket advice. But but speak with your doctor, someone who's very familiar with your problems. And and it's not just the doctors. I mean, it, you know, it's a great resource to go to a doctor. But you know, do you recommend uh, people if they need support to speak with friends and, and family? Um, and, and when should somebody go and see a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counselor? I suggest a stepped care approach where you take you start with the simplest intervention, and if you find that you're the stress management, trying to have a healthy diet and sleep and exercise, and limit your dose of TV exposure um, and connecting with friends and family. Uh, If those sorts of things aren't helpful for you, then I suggest go and try some of the internet apps and see if if they're of help. And if they're not helpful for you or if there's an urgency to your problem, then go and and speak with a counsellor or a, a mental health practitioner or your family doctor. And how important is uh, the chemistry, if you will, the relationship between the patient and the psychologist? I have a friend who's actually going through uh, cancer treatments right now and um, has been referred to a psychologist. But, you know, the they didn't find that psychologist help beneficial at the time. And so what mm-hmm. would you recommend for somebody? I mean, you can't just expect to be sent to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counselor and expect there to be chemistry. And, and how important is that chemistry between the patient and the healthcare provider? It's very important. You can have a healthcare provider who's a genius, but if you don't relate to them, if you don't feel comfortable with them, then obviously you're not going to share what's going on. And if you don't share what's going on, they're not going to be able to understand your problem. So chemistry is important. Sometimes uh, the chemistry evolves over time. So you might come in for your first assessment session with a psychologist and feel uh, uncomfortable and apprehensive and not sure what's going on. And you might have doubts, am I going to be able to work with this person? But for many people, they find if they give it a, give it a shot, give it a couple of sessions, that they get into it. They get into a groove and they, they develop a good working relationship. But, you know, there, there are other circumstances you walk in and say, I, I don't think I can work with this person. So it very much depends. But you, you, you're not going to know until you go in there and, and, um, and check out uh, the mental health practitioner. And, and give it a try and then, and then try again, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to thinking, oh, I can't be helped because, you know, they sent me to somebody and I just didn't feel that their, you know, help at the, at the time was beneficial. And, and, you know, things change as well over time and, and people's mental health needs change. Exactly, yes. Just because you've gone in to see, say, someone for cognitive behavior therapy that didn't help, that doesn't mean that somebody else, another practitioner can't help you. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because mental health is so important. Uh, I mean, just living a daily life without a pandemic, because so many other things can occur. You know, people can be hit broadside, you know, mm-hmm. with not expecting. I, I've heard so many people say they just didn't expect the job loss. They didn't expect the cancer diagnosis. They didn't expect the death of a, of a loved one. You know, and, and these this is life. And how critical is mental health and and I like to say mental health is created, and I think you touched upon that a little bit with good sleep and exercise and nutrition. Mm-hmm. You know, how can people actually uh, work towards, you know, optimal mental health? Well, um, I, I think what we need to do is work towards good enough mental health. 
you know, there's a par- parallel with parenting. There's good enough parenting. And so long as you provide a good enough environment, children more or less turn out the same. Uh, and so there's good enough <laughs> mental health. So, so long as you have enough good enough days to have some quality of life and uh, friends and, and connection with family and are able to do your job, you might find you have good enough mental health without um, it being optimal or optimized. So, yeah, there's, there's a danger of being perfectionistic of saying to yourself, I have to have perfect mental health or I have to be completely free of anxiety. If you set up those expectations, then you're likely to be disappointed. That, that is excellent advice. It's, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Dr. Stephen Taylor, I really appreciate you coming on the program. Uh, Dr. Stephen Taylor is a UBC psychiatry professor and also the author of The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Diseases. Can, where can people get your book, Dr. Taylor? Um, I gather it's on, oh, it's from the publisher, Cambridge Scholars Publishing, and I think it's on Amazon, on, um, you can get it on Kindle, I believe. I haven't really, I should know more about this, but I've been too busy doing pandemic stuff. Hey, that's good (laughs) enough for me. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. It's been delightful having you. You're very welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.